What is this? For the masses. Welcome to the For the Masses podcast. My name is John Baird, your host. This is episode 10. We're officially in double digits and I'm grateful and I'm blessed. So thank you for the masses community. Anyone new listening to the podcast, welcome. Anyone knows that listen to this podcast on a regular basis, we have admin tasks because we do what we have to do. Please follow us on all platforms at For The Masses Podcast. That's on Instagram. That's on Facebook. That's on YouTube. Okay. Episode 10, we're interviewing Father Paul Abernathy, an Orthodox priest out of Pittsburgh. He runs a nonprofit and this is his calling called Neighborhood Resiliency, inspire a movement in which suffering people raised up from trauma become empowered healers, community builders, and positive change makers. He's developed a trauma assessment tool we'll talk about in the episode, and he talks about a commission, a great commission. I'm super excited. I'm grateful that he made time on a schedule to share his story, share his initiatives, and his movement with the Florida Masses community. So let's jump into the episode, Florida Masses Podcast. Wow, welcome to For the Message Podcast. Super excited to have Father Paul Abernathy with me. He's an Orthodox priest. Father Paul, how are you doing? Jonathan, I'm doing great. It is so good to be with you. Hey, I'm grateful that you were able to jump on the podcast and be able to share the, the knowledge that you impressed upon me over these many years. Oh, it's an honor truly to be with you. And it has been a few years now. I don't know when I met you. I met you like 1917. Yeah, at least. Back at uh, when you were at Willing Jesuit University, brought a, brought a crew up here. There was a lot of differences even here at that time. So you've known us throughout some of our growth even. I, I agree. I, I, we, I, was, I was present before the current name. That's right. Before the current name, which we'll get into later in the episode. But yeah, so I was on a, a mission service trip. And I think I was leading because they didn't have anyone else to lead. And obviously, I've had my fair time in, you know, camp ministry being involved with service. They was like, we need someone to lead this mission trip. I was like, okay, I don't know what you guys are doing. I've never been on any service trips <laughs> locally uh, or even like uh, overseas. But I was like, let me see. And then we come up to get a get a, a speech by Father Paul Abernathy, a Jesuit alum. So Father Paul, like talk about your upbringing a little bit, where you come from um, and before we cross paths. Yeah, well, I, I grew up outside of Pittsburgh in um, in a beautiful community, South Fayette, outside of Bridgeville. I uh, had a I had a single mother, social worker, my sister and I, and we all of us, the three of us, we lived uh, with uh, with my grandparents, who just gave us the most beautiful upbringing. They were all people of deep Christian faith. Uh, and certainly all of them being people of, of deep service. My mother, obviously a social worker, uh, lived her life serving the poor. And my grandmother had been a nurse, a psychiatric nurse, dealing with some patients with very serious psychiatric issues. My grandfather had been himself a, a military veteran, a veteran of World War II, combat infantry, uh, received Purple Heart Bronze Star, and went on to be uh, a really impressive community leader. And he had been a commissioner in our, our local township. He was the commander of the VFW, and he had served the volunteer fire department for many years. And so I had some really tremendous examples about if we loved God, how we had also to love our neighbor, and uh, and so that was uh, that was my childhood. Wow! So so you just been around like a lot of like social work, a lot of social justice endeavors, like from a young age. Sounds yeah, well, there's no question about that. I would say that my family, that one thing that certainly impressed me about my family, they there was always a very strong. So it wasn't just serving the poor; there was also a very strong sense of justice. 
uh, about why were people suffering? What was the role that we as society had to play uh, in the suffering of the most vulnerable? And I remember just the strength and intention with which they often championed the cause of the oppressed. And I, and I always understood it to be uh, out of their love for God, that we cannot say we love God if we do not, in fact, love one another. And so that was very important. I think a very important aspect of my upbringing. And I think also to understand that just whatever it is that we see, I think I learned from them, whatever it is that we see, some people just believe this is just the way it is. And they never saw it like that. There was never that, oh, well, that's just the way it is. It was always, well, it can be better. And why isn't it? And uh, and that were, these were very, very powerful lessons that uh, I, I had from my family. No, that's awesome. It sounds like a high level of being self-aware. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know where that self-awareness comes from, because I feel like my mom, you know, and this goes back to why I think I relate to you a lot because we have a lot of parallels that I don't know if you know but I know because obviously like I, I've, I've looked into you a little bit more but there's a lot of parallels we can get into a little bit later so with all that being said you know just like a strong sense for justice from where you're where you're, like when you grow up but that doesn't mean you initially just want to go and be you know you want to fight for justice immediately so what was that transition like when did you figure that out and then how did like you go to college and then you started to figure things out. Like yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting journey. I, you know, when I went to uh, I went to college, I, my initial major I was actually an accounting major. Whenever I first went to college, and I was an accounting major because I had I had initially wanted to be in the FBI. I had uh, grown up watching The Untouchables with Elliot Ness. I thought that was really important work, and I thought that would be that would be great for me to do something like that. And I knew that that uh, one of the majors that was important to them was accounting. So I, I actually going into college was an accounting major. My grandfather also was an accounting was an accountant by trade. What was so interesting though was I ended up from the very first week I was at Wheeling Jesuit University, I ended up working at a soup kitchen with on 14th Street there in East Wheeling. And I would go on to actually do that every week. I was a Jesuit. So I did it my first week. Someone had invited me. I said, sure, I'll go. I, I went, one of the other students that I, I just met. And I went and, and ended up going every week throughout my college career. And what happened was there was a professor, Dr. Michael Snart, who was an international relations professor, who uh, would also went there every week at the same time. So here I am, this accounting major, and I'm, and I'm sitting there at the soup kitchen. And it just so happened that usually, after the food was served, I would have the blessing of being able to wash dishes. But so too then would Dr. Snart. And it would be just he and I washing dishes. So we'd be back there washing dishes. He had some great conversations. I really began to look up to him. He, and over time, he said to me, you know, I think really you should be in uh, international studies as opposed to accounting. And it's resonated with me and because I was always reading the newspaper. I was very interested with what was happening overseas. My grandfather, needless to say, because of his uh, because of his military service, and then also my grandfather was Syrian. My father's African-American. My grandfather, Syrian, had a strong awareness of the, the events yeah. of the Middle East. It resonated with me. So I made that shift to become an international studies major. And in that time, Dr. Snar, who was a man of deep Christian faith, also had a strong sense of justice that I was very, I think that resonated also with me because of my background. And so he exposed me. Uh, I made that transition. He exposed me to some very incredible men and women of faith who are doing some profound uh, works for justice around the world. Everything from Christian peacemaker teams to 
people who were, you know, exposing child exploitation uh, in in foreign countries to people who were taking a radical approach to, uh, you know, addressing poverty in the streets. And and it made a deep impression on me. And I really felt at home, really. And uh, in my growth and in my formation, I was then blessed with more people who would help me do that and all culminated in my senior year being able to live in the Mother Jones house that Wheeling Jesuit University started, which was a program to not only serve in a poor, predominantly black community, but also to learn from some very remarkable role models. Reverend Jim uh, Ellison, who uh, who at that time ran the Lachlan Chapel, was directly in charge of that program. Incredible minister of God who had spent his life serving the poor, also had a strong sense of justice. And so I had these great examples in my life. And uh, that was the formation that I needed, which eventually would come to serve me quite well. No, absolutely. So it, it sounds like, all right, so at a young age, you were exposed to like justice and like what that really means. And then God slowly qualified you. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know? Very well said. And, and, and that's amazing because like I, even in my, in my case, you know. So we both attended Wooling Jesuit University. Yes. Right? And for everyone listening, uh, the Jesuits are a religious sect under the Catholicism, and they focus on scholars. They're, they're scholars. They they teach, right? Um. So we, we come from that cloth. Everyone at our university is a big proponent of service. No matter who you are, you do some type of service, right? Yeah. And, and what that looks like sometimes is very humbling experiences where you're washing dishes with priests. Yeah. And I think it's super humbling to be, be, be put in those situations because that's where uh, change starts to happen. You know, and so you end up you went for accounting, right? You end up making the shift over to international studies, right? You're already aware of the world with your, you know, your grandfather being Syrian. Where did the military play a factor into your college career? Well, you know, for me, the military was something that was never, ever a question in my mind. It was something that I always knew I was going to do because my great-grandfather was in World War One. My grandfather was in World War Two. My mother and father were both in the Army. They were – I actually was born on Fort Carson in Fort Carson, Colorado. Oh. Uh, I was born on – because my mom and dad were both in the Army. That's where they met. That's where they were ma- – that's where they met. They were married. I was born there and I grew up also uh, with a very strong sense of duty as it relates to freedom in this country. I would grow, my family took me almost annually, or I would say at one point annually to Gettysburg, actually. We will go to Gettysburg. This was our family vacation and the impression that those trips made on me in the context of my family history of what sacrifice for freedom really meant and people willing to serve and the tradition that my family had in that. And so I uh, I wanted to be the fourth generation that would continue to serve uh, my country. And I so I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. In fact, my mother had to sign the papers for me. I enlisted in the Army Reserve. I was 17 years old. My mother signed the paper. I graduated from high school. Six days later, I was on the plane to Fort Leonardwood, Missouri for uh, basic training in AIT. And uh, so actually, by the time I got to Jesuit, I was already in the Army Reserve. It wasn't until, of course, I graduated in uh, 2001 and uh, in 2002, of course, still being in the reserve for that time, my unit was called active duty and went overseas with the Army's 3rd Infantry Division. It crossed into Iraq the very first day of the ground war, March of 2003. So most of my, my active duty experience in the Iraq war came actually after I'd already completed my education at Jesuit. Wow. And, and that, that's really that's really insane, because I, uh, obviously, like me being in, in I, I understand what you just said. Yeah. You said 2001 hit. You got called to active duty, not post invasion time. You're like first waves invasion into right. Iraq, Afghanistan. I don't want to use that word invasion as if like it was invasive because it is, but uh, <laughs> invasion time. So immature theater 
we're coming in to do some type of warfare we never we never took part in before. So that's that's huge, you know, and um, definitely super impressive for a young man still like 21, 22 years old when you went over there. I was uh, I was 23. I was 23 at the time. Yeah. 23 years. And um, mm-hmm. and like, again, there was a lot of veterans still in uh, operationally that you would directly work with that was had seen something like that. So I, I, I can only imagine. You know, it was uh, it was quite honestly, it was very surreal. I mean, I often think of people who have served uh, since that time. And of course, once the invasion ended, having spent you know a year there, we got to see the campaign settle in, uh, got to see the warfare change, got to see what the campaign eventually came to be. Um, And for those folks that came afterwards, uh, the invasion itself it's almost indescribable. It's the the amount of the equipment, the logistics, the coordination. The um, Lord, I remember, uh, you know, the missiles, the artillery fire. I mean, of course, all of that would continue, but that's the level of it in the invasion was just so surreal. And uh, and you know what 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 an experience. I will tell you, you know, it's it's one of those things where. We really get a sense of, you know, really a strong sense of duty, a strong sense of capacity, a strong sense of commitment, I think, to one another. You know, you've got to really take care of uh, one another in a unit. Um, It's very obviously important in a period of time like that. And I would say that it's also, you know, a really stark reminder about what we as human beings are honestly capable of doing to one another. Because I, you know, I I think that... um, you know, sometimes we're not honest about what, what we can do to one another. And, you know, the battlefield uh, reveals that horrifically and, very, you know, in very profound and uh, w- ways that you cannot ignore. So I think for me, it was it was really powerful formation. I think it, it also can truly deepen one's faith and experience like that, which is very important. Absolutely. I think any any situation that you're, you know, you're, you're putting the uncomfortable situation kind of does make you go back to like what you know. And like, I think a lot of like us, our upbringing are, you know, come from a faith background. Mm. You, do, you do go there. But, you know, before we go forward with your story in Iraq, first of all, thank you for your service. Thank and you I, for yours. I appreciate it. You know, <laughs> but for like, again, like me understanding the magnitude of like what you did uh, in that time period, you know, I, I, re- I really mean that, you know, and, um, mm. kind of, and like I said, it kind of makes me, you know, sad because I understand what you, what you had to go through to some yeah. extent, you know? Yeah. Mm. And um, so like shifting back towards that again, like I, I, re- I relate to you on a, a lot because again, I, I'm in the service, right? Mm-hmm. Reserve component soldier right. while going to Jesuit, also right. involved with campus ministry, you know, right. ministry, eventually becoming a resident minister, you know, mm. and um, Father Paul prior to, you know, that I don't know if you know, my dad was a minister. I remember you saying that. My dad was a minister. My mom was a missionary who my wow. dad's, my grandma uh, was uh, she was a, a missionary as well, and my mom wow. and my grandma worked together, and that's how he met my dad essentially. So, wow. amongst like heavy service, service oriented people from a very young age, you know, and um, and that's the cloth I come from, you know. Mm. So like, I don't know. So just hearing your story, I'm like, man, this sounds like m- my story of yeah the whole war thing, right? No, but, um, but... so, so I, I met you, and I'm like, Dude, this is this is wild, you know. People, <laughs> people tell me, hey, this guy, like, you need to talk to him. And I'm like, okay, I'll just talk. To yeah. Him. He's a priest. You know, so, so Father Paul, like enough about me, like going back to your story, like you're, you're in Iraq uh, invasion time and you saw this, you saw PTSD. Yeah. You know, I, I'll tell so here's what, here's what happened. It was eight months into our, eight months into our tour of duty. And uh, there was a, uh, there was a guy in our company who had a, a nervous breakdown. 
an absolute nervous breakdown. And I mean, it was, it was, uh, people sometimes use that word loosely, that phrase, nervous breakdown, but this really was one. Now, I remember what happened. They, they came and he w- they took his weapon away from him, put him on suicide watch. It was on a base camp in, in, uh, Balad, Iraq, you know, in the Sunni triangle, which at that time we referred to as the triangle of death. It's where all of the real hardcore fighting was happening. And so he, they put him on suicide watch. And then shortly thereafter, I mean, it was just, I, I remember it being not more than maybe a, a day or two. There was an army, uh, I can't remember if it was a psychologist or psychiatrist, but uh, but army doc with a psych background came to talk to our company. And what she had talked to our company about was post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, previously to that, I really had no understanding of that. I had no experience with it, no knowledge of it. And and of course, that really was very fascinating because this army doc was up there telling us essentially that because we had this experience, it may have disrupted uh, how we see ourselves in the world so much that we cannot reintegrate back into the world that we once knew so well. Yeah. That was a very frightening prospect to a young soldier, especially seeing what happened to this one this one guy who was just having a rough time of it. And so that experience would eventually shape my ministry years later, uh, how, taking a look at our urban core and understanding the types of trauma that people were experiencing in their urban core. And I'd often like to say that we went away and we spent one year at war, but we have people in our communities that have basically spent their entire lives at war. And if we have a soldier who has a nervous breakdown after eight months of combat, what about people who have had to deal with something like this for eight years? And, uh, and, and so really that sensitivity, that perspective, and how that would eventually shape the ministry that God had called me to do, it's very important. No, absolutely. So how, so do you, was that like realization between the correlation of post-traumatic stress disorders at war and the community? Did it happen immediately or did you have more instances over in Iraq that brought you to that realization? Like, this is real. Like, you know what happened? It wasn't immediate. It wasn't until I came home and went to seminary, got a seminary and got into the ministry that I really made that correlation because what I started out you know, I, I, w- I had a probably pretty traditional view of what needed to happen in community. Yeah, even though I had had, ex- you know, I had good formation in this up to this point, but but I was thinking we'll help people get jobs and we'll help people, you know, we'll help people get food. We'll help, but I was thinking we'll help people get jobs. We'll get people into housing. These types of things. But what I began to see was people get jobs and lose jobs. People get housing and lose housing. And I would hear their stories around what happened. I never get one fella. He was saying how he didn't know how he, why he was having such trouble holding down a job. And so he was talking about this. And, and over the course of his conversation, he, uh, I don't even know if he realized that he was making this transition, went back to a moment where he and his cousin and a friend were walking down the street, the three of them, he was between the two and somebody had come. They were, they were boys. They were maybe like 14, 15 and someone had come up. They all, these three guys, they were all living lives in the street, as they like to say. And somebody came up behind them on the opposite side of a beef and shot his cousin and his friend in the back of the head and spared him. And he it told me that he had held his cousin then while his cousin died. And then after he ended at that point of the story, seamlessly transitioned back to these words, I don't know why I can't hold down a job. And it took me back to that military experience, that story and stories like it, when I would think about 
some even of my friends who came home after a pretty tough year and some handled it real well and some didn't. And there were reasons why they didn't. You know, some soldiers went to the bars and that's how they wanted to deal with things. And some soldiers went to church and that's how they wanted to deal with things. And there was everything in between. And seeing that and recognizing that these experiences can really impact us, especially if we haven't the right supports in our lives, if we haven't the right resilience in our lives, that we haven't the right healing strategies in our life. And so that really set me personally and then us organizationally off on a quest to better understand this and try to really work to address the immense trauma in so many of our communities and, and proclaim and work towards a resilient, healing and healthy community. No, absolutely. So Father Paul, you you know, like I said, you saw all that stuff in Iraq, you saw PTSD, you, you identified it, you know, and a correlation that you have in your communities, right? You come back home from Iraq, you get out the military, right? You, have, right. you do seminary, you start working in the community, and then you start hearing these stories. You start hearing these stories about trauma that's happening to real people and how it's impacting them later on in life. So follow Paul. Obviously, you still do traditional ministry, but you was like, what's the answer? What's the answer? Does, did you start doing research and you came up with you know, your current your organization or did you just form your current organization? Like how did that that part of it come before we talk about the organization? No, that's great. So what happened was when, when I was observing this, I also understood that I had to understand it better. And so I engaged and, you know, we come from a Jesuit background, so we understand the value of education and how that can be a resource. And even like when we were willing Jesuit, the university was playing a role in the Ohio Valley, was making an impact. So I always had this experience that universities are a resource. Universities are a resource. So I went to the universities, actually, Duquesne University and the University of Pittsburgh to really help us think through this issue of community trauma. And so we started a series of community conversations on this topic that was facilitated by these academicians and some very powerful discussions. It was very interesting because a lot of times community meetings were really about things that community members truthfully, uh, I don't want to say they didn't care about it, but it wasn't, it didn't stir their hearts the same way. You know, people, they would look at charrettes of, of developments and people would say, well, we want the shrubs three feet to the right, or this building's one story too tall, but these mothers are losing their sons and people are ODing in the streets and people are getting evicted. And, you know, the list goes on. This is what we knew was very important to talk about. So we had these, so we had these, we brought university folks in to have these facilitated discussions on a community level, and they were very powerful. They were very raw. A lot of tears were shed uh, over the course of this period. A lot of people were, were wanting to know what, you know, what we can do about it. It all culminated in 2014 with an exercise we did called a consultative workshop. We had learned about this from our colleagues at Duquesne University. It was uh, strategies that are used by the World Health Organization in some very challenging political and economic environments. And what the consultative workshop, it's it's based off the idea that a lot of times communities don't make progress because they try to solve issues and issues don't have solutions. Problems do. So the question was, can we problematize the issue? Can we problematize the issue of community trauma? And that's precisely the exercise that we had in 2014. And we brought together people from the community who were stakeholders with lived experience. We had mothers who'd lost their sons. People who had been incarcerated, people who had just been in the community for years. We brought together with, with uh, doctors and psychiatrists and clinicians and academicians uh, to create really essentially a think tank around exactly this issue. And from this exercise emerged this framework we now refer to as trauma-informed community development. And this is the understanding that the goal of uh, development has to be well-being, community well-being. This has to be the goal of development in that we can facilitate a transformation from 
trauma-affected community, which means a community that has a disproportionate experience of trauma that really to the point where that trauma informs the community's culture and worldview, we can go from there to a resilient healing and healthy community. And these development strategies, when implemented with a trauma-informed approach, can really help facilitate that transition. So trauma-informed community development, we started to use this phrase. And over the years, we thought, this really needs to be what we are all about. Because we would say things like we're feeding people and we're clothing people. We have a clinic and, you know, these sorts of things. And we're looking into trauma-informed community development. We came at the, through this period to understand that trauma-informed community development is what we did. And all of these and, and these different strategies were different ways in which we were advancing that mission of trauma-informed community development. So that eventually then laid the foundation for what has now become the Neighborhood Resilience Project. No, absolutely. So, so, and that's, that's a lot. You know, you basically problemize an issue that's all over the place. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you this, Father Paul, when I met you and you told me this concept and I learned about their assessment tool. So it, is it the trauma, trauma informed community development assessment tool or what is it called? It's called, you know what, now we, it's called I Am Healthy, small I, small M, capital H. You know, okay. these techies, they got these sharp names that we got. <laughs> I Am Healthy, yeah. Yeah, so you developed this tool, this tool that it assigns a trauma level to a community. And, and that was powerful for me because you told me about how you took this to West Virginia and assessed West Virginia and um, came back with the, they had the same rating as a, as a inner city community. Yes, we had, it was so great. There was actually some researchers that looked into some, some research in, uh, in West Virginia, which obviously right next to us, because, because one of the things that was so interesting is that people generally think that. Uh, all of these types of challenges are found in in the urban core. They're found in predominantly black communities or predominantly Latino communities, whatever the case might be. And the, the reality is, is that when you go to poor white communities, especially in this post-industrial age, you know, it's interesting. There's a psychiatrist here locally that's just learned that he's looking, re, looking into this issue of, of trauma in the post-industrial age. These communities that used to be steel towns, these communities used to be coal towns, and what really is happening in them as a result of collapsed in industry. And of course, we see how significant the suffering is in many of these communities. Uh, in the urban core, you might say gun violence is a big problem, whereas in many of these communities, it's opioid addiction yep. and domestic abuse and child abuse in the trauma is quite extensive. And, uh, you know, especially, you know, it's especially with uh, with the lethality of, uh, you know, of these drugs at this particular time, the amount of people ODing, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, it's it's an American, it's actually an American problem. And I think we need to understand as a nation that we have to give some attention to this, that we cannot say that, you know, I would say there's no patriotism without really acknowledging uh, this deep level of suffering that's in areas of our nation that has really truly not is not being addressed adequately. No, I, I agree. And like this, this concept was huge to me, because again, I'm, I'm from an inner city environment. So you know, it's easy to like this being that thought process of this is happening to us because of like the type of people we are, the marginally oppressed, right? Mm -hmm. But it kind of shifted me to understanding that it's all economically driven. Like it's all economically oppression, you know? And um, once I realized that and then the trauma piece looks the same on, you know, white people as us black people or whatever the case is, I was like, this is crazy and we need to focus on this, you know? So since then, obviously, I've probably, uh, you know, booked you for events at wherever I was at over the last four or five years. 
Right. You know, That's right. In some cases, two years, because I, I really believe believe in, in the work in the work you're doing at uh, mm. now neighborhood neighborhood resiliency, the former being. Uh, focus Pittsburgh. Right. Right. And and that's that's big for me. So I definitely think you're doing good work. So now that you have all this in place, you have neighborhood resiliency in place. What was the what does that look like? What does fighting trauma and inner city violence look like? Great question. So for us, we have three really three program areas by which we advance this mission of trauma informed community development. Three program areas are community support, health and well-being, leadership development. So firstly, we know that we have to engage people uh, in uh, the like I would say acute crisis. People who really are, you know, there's a difference between stress and strain. You know, stress is sort of ongoing. It's something that is there. You know, for example, when we were at war, there was a, there was a level of stress that was there. As you know, in the military, there's a level of stress that's there that can impact people and it can impact people negatively if they're not prepared for that. But then that's different than strain. Strain is we just don't have the resources we we need. You know, it's not people aren't, there's not this, this overlying level of stress because of a kind of condition, but there's a strain because we don't have enough money to pay our light bill. Um, the good thing about strain is that we can alleviate strain. You know, we, we might not be able to, to, to it be it may become very difficult to deal with stress that maybe is unseen or is caused by some very external factors. But if somebody says, I, I just can't pay my light bill, that's strain. We can address that. And so we understand, and that can help alleviate some of the burden for people. So we have programs that are really focused on addressing the strain, alleviating the burden uh, in very, very tangible in rapid ways. And that's where we have these community support programs where we're looking at basic needs, food, clothing, and emergency relief, essentially, you know, in various forms, whether it be meals for specific people, food pantry for families, or meals that we take to children on the weekends who are food insecure. That's community support is an, is an aspect of this work. The second is health and well-being. And this is where we have firstly to understand that access to health care has got to be critical component of that. So we have specifically a free health center where we see people who are uninsured and underinsured because this is a major gap. We have people who they have insurance with Medicaid or they have insurance with the Affordable Care Act or with their employer. We have some folks in between who they make just maybe a little bit much to be on Medicaid, but they don't make nearly enough to afford health insurance with the ACA and their employers don't provide health insurance. And so we we want to cover health care for people. And so we have free primary behavior and dental care, provide medicine, um, lab work procedures, testing, all at free cost. We've even had patients receive surgery for free as well through partnerships with um, local hospitals. But then also under health and well-being is where we also, having built some credibility with these basic needs programs, are able then to facilitate some long-term, what we call micro-community interventions, where we conduct an analysis of the community. We look at areas of the community that need specific attention. We go into those communities, probe for people who are willing to help us facilitate a long-term intervention. And we have actually strategies where we do a year-long revitalization effort in these areas that, that looks at health and well-being, opportunity-making, place-making, and how we're engaging all of the influencers that really impact life in this community. And so along with that, also health under health and well-being is where we have then a trauma response team that responds specifically to gun violence, homicides as a result of gun violence. So being there in the first 48 hours after somebody shot and killed in the neighborhood, helping begin the healing process, helping bring stabilization to the community is very, very important, you know, especially now in the aftermath of COVID when we see rising gun violence rates across the country. So that's all under health and well-being. Thirdly is leadership development, because we know you yourself, Jonathan, are a leader and 
we know the importance of leadership and these communities need leaders. The civil rights movement just didn't happen. It didn't, it, it, it wasn't that people just all of a sudden got tired of Jim Crow and got tired of segregation just one and, and just somehow came forward. The level of the infrastructure that was in place to help prepare people. Rosa Parks herself was trained. Martin Luther King himself was trained. The, we had the freedom schools, the citizenship schools, the, the nonviolent training centers in Nashville, Tennessee, the Highlander Institute. This was a vast infrastructure that helped develop the leadership necessary to create positive change across Jim Crow South. And so we believe in much the same way. We have to have an infrastructure that will help train and prepare people to become agents of positive change. You know, leaders, leaders are made. I mean, there's people that have inherent leadership qualities, but, you know, as we know, leadership is developed over time. And so we are committed to that. So we train people to be what we call behavioral health community organizers. They're trained to, uh, to implement these long-term interventions. We train people as trauma responders, how we're going to respond to violence in the community. We train people as now community health deputies, how we respond to COVID and what we do now with the vaccine rollout. We train people as part of these long-term micro-community interventions to be essentially block leaders and co-chairs and team leaders to help drive forward these, these, these development plans that are the vision of this community community. And lastly, we've trained cohorts from around the country in this broader trauma-informed community development framework. People from cohorts from Sarasota, uh, Florida, Richmond, Petersburg, Virginia, New Britain, Connecticut, Kansas City, Missouri, and, and other places as well. And so when we say community support, health and well-being, and leadership development, for us, that translates to engage, heal, empower. And that is the arc of transformation for us in trauma-informed community development. Once we engage the person addressing the acute crisis, then we begin to heal. And as people begin to heal, we help develop them into leaders. And so we've, we've learned a lot. We still have certainly a lot to learn, but I've learned a lot, enough to know that uh, really this time to have a different kind of approach to revitalizing many of our communities that have suffered too much for too long. No, I agree. That's amazing. That's amazing. It sounds like you, you, you guys nailed down like what it is you do. Um, and I know you do a lot because I've been there a few times <laughs> and I saw, I saw like people getting dental work. I saw the oh, yeah. I was like, but he's an Orthodox priest. You got church on the bottom. Right. Like, I was like yeah. trying to understand, <laughs> you know, so I know it's definitely noble work and, and I'm, I'm glad you guys are starting to like definitely find that niche. You know, um, you guys should start a podcast by the way about trauma. No. By the way. Well, I know you guys are doing a lot. So but when you're ready, you can talk to me about it. So, <laughs> Paul, Paul, so, so where does, so you're an Orthodox priest. Can you talk about that and how that helps you with, with what you're currently working in? Yeah, sure. So the, uh, yeah, I'm an Orthodox priest. Um, the Orthodox church is, uh, you know, it's 2000 years old. It's a very ancient church. You know, when you go to, when you go to the Holy Land, it's interesting. The place where, where Jesus was crucified, that very spot, it's the Orthodox church that takes care of that, where Jesus was born. That's the Orthodox church that's over that. The, the, the well, when, when Jesus, the Samaritan woman, there's an Orthodox church that's over that. So it's very, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very ancient church. And, uh, you know, and it helps significantly because I will tell you, there's, there's so many people that we see daily that have been so rejected by the world that they to themselves want to reject the world. They have an otherworldly perspective and it, the suffering that they've been through has in many ways tilled the soil of their hearts, making them ripe for the seeds of God's grace. And I will tell you, there are so many times when I have been with people in moments of crisis, in deep suffering, where what really they were seeking was prayer, where people wanted not just counsel, they wanted divine counsel. People wanted not just knowledge, they wanted divine 
wisdom. People knew that medication uh, or substance could never heal the pain, but only mask the pain, but that the Lord himself was the healer of broken hearts. And so I know that in our community where there is so much suffering is a community that is profoundly beautiful in many ways, but especially in that it is a community that does know how to cry out to God and really in many ways desires nothing less. Uh, It's not a story that's often told. It's not a portrayal that's often made in the media, which is really a shame. But it is absolutely the experience that I've had uh, in our suffering communities. And I have learned from, I've learned from many people what prayer really means. And I've learned the power of prayer. And I've learned that there are times in which we must spend, we must be in the presence of the living God. Uh, and of course, these people have validated all of that as well. And so uh, it is a good thing to do this uh, we talk about trauma-informed human development, and we have these strategies. There's a lot of science involved, and there's a lot of – in all of that, and with all of that said, it is a good thing to do this as a ministry, as a Christian ministry. And ultimately, that fact gives it deep resonance in the hearts of many broken persons across our region and indeed the nation. I agree, and it, and it is a ministry, and it's an un- unaddressed ministry that a lot of people – I, I think, again, it's go back to self-awareness and being aware of, like, this is, like, really the problem, you know? And like I said, that, that, like, that was impressionable on, on me immediately. And, and Father Paul, so what is service? What is compassion uh, to you? Well, compassion really is the fascinating thing to me about the word compassion is that it's got the same root as the word community. It's got the same root as the word communion. You know, we say communion, community, compassion. And the word literally compassion, it literally means to suffer together with. I think we will know when we have compassion on the other person, when we don't just pity them in their sorrow, but rather when their tears become our tears. When if their hearts break, our hearts break also. We will know compassion. And of course, that demonstrates a level of connection and ultimately love that we have for someone. You know, sometimes we see people in tragedy and we think, oh, what a shame. And then we move on to the next thing. Uh, That really is a, in in some ways, it demonstrates a a lack of connection and a lack of love. But when we love somebody, uh, you know, you ask parents sometimes who see their children suffer or children who see their parents suffer. And you will see how even though the suffering is not theirs, watching someone you love suffer is heartbreaking. Uh, And that is really the beginning of compassion, um, that we love somebody that much, that we have that level of connection with them. Where we look down the streets and we see somebody who's on the street corner, maybe they're a prostitute, maybe maybe it's dealing drugs, maybe they're high or whatever the case might be. But the only thing that happens is that our heart breaks for them because we see, we recognize the suffering and the pain in their life. That is compassion. And I think when we attain that, uh, we attain that through love, through connection, that when we attain that, we really then are able to serve in very profound ways. No, I, I agree. And, and, and it's equivalent to like what I saw, you know, recently with loss, you know, and it was many people around me that agreed with me. Mm. And, and that meant the world to me more than, you know, any like box of cards people sent, any like, you know, phone call, but to know that they're grieving with me meant more. Amen. 
So, so Father Paul, like, you know, and obviously like your, your work and then into your spiritual, your spiritual, like, I'm sort of like your spiritual calling, you know, how, how can people support you? Oh, how can they support resiliency? How can they be of service? You know, thank you for asking that, Jonathan. Like all things in the digital age, you can certainly catch us online. Our, our, our website is uh, neighborhoodresilience.org. And of course, on that on our website, uh, there is a place that you can click get involved. We're always looking for volunteers, whether it be for our trauma response teams, primarily volunteers, community health deputies, people who sometimes they're not from here, but they come in here to spend a week and serve. Um, there's always ways to volunteer. Uh, sometimes it's a one off. Sometimes it's more long term. You know, financial assistance is certainly always appreciated. And even the opportunity to, uh, you know, for invitations to speak. For people to learn, for people to to really in, in, uh, explore some of these issues in a more complex way, are all ways that people can get involved. So go, I encourage people to go to the website neighborresilience.org. Um, you can like us on Facebook. We we have a Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you know, and and I will tell you and reach out. We love to talk to people. Uh, we love to engage in dialogue. We love to have conversations about how we can work together to make things better. For sure. Oh, absolutely. And, and Father Paul, do you have any like personal like brand style like website? Do you have your own website? Uh, I know you have a TED Talk or a TED Talk Pittsburgh, like any, anywhere else people can catch you. You know, I, I don't have a personal website. I, I uh, you know, there is the TED Talk out there that's, uh, you know, which is also you'll find on our website about trauma-informed human development. And uh, I guess I suppose in this in this uh, online age, I pop up in different ways at different times. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no personal, no personal website. Okay. No, I know. Well, Father Paul, I appreciate you reaching out and will like replying to me and like getting you on a podcast. Um, and I will say next, like, what's the commission that you leave with everyone? What do you want at least one person to take away? Over the course of this last year, we have endured a great deal together. Certainly there was the pandemic and the uncertainty that that, that presented. And there was also the inequities and the ongoing pain which the pandemic revealed. At one point, we watched cities across our nation burn from sea to shining sea. And many Americans began to question who they were and even who we were. What I would want people to walk away with is a deep understanding that this past year has given us not only the opportunity of a lifetime, it has given us the opportunity of many generations. Life as we knew it going into the pandemic was severely disrupted. And this disruption has created for us an opportunity to do something new in ways that we could never have before imagined. Seize this moment. Leverage your goodwill, purify your hearts, prepare yourselves for the struggle and take bold steps to build a new future for what we do now could help and heal and inspire and lift up millions of lives yet and still are even still unborn. So go forth and do great things. Thank you, Father Paul. We appreciate it. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's always so good to be with you. It's always a pleasure, homies. How could you not listen to that episode and not be inspired? Father Paul has a way of articulating his words, speaking with conviction in such a way that leaves you nothing short of inspired. So he talked about a commission. I pray that everyone is able to take that commission.
Please continue to follow his movement, Neighborhood Resiliency. His links are in the show notes. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's in the description. And I'm super, super, super grateful and blessed he was able to share his story and his movement with us. Thank you for everyone that listened at For the Masses Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to my mother, Alfredo Bullock. She ran her race with elegance and pride. I love you forever and always.